is August 26th, 2020, and this is Sam Walking in the World, episode 16. And now I gotta say, I made myself laugh this morning on my walk with the dog. And when that happens, I know I'm gonna have some fun doing this show, so buckle up. Um, I'll give you a quick rundown, but I want to get right to it. Um, in stupid stuff, I'm going to talk about anthropomorphism. I'll explain what that means more. But the question basically I was asking myself is, um, are dogs thinking what we think they're thinking? My wife and I have a disagreement about this. In happiness sense, I'm going to talk about being down to earth. It's an expression everybody uses, but um, I'm going to dig a little deeper. Um, then in lifey stuff, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about something in political science called the Overton window. Joseph Overton is a political scientist, and he developed this theory. It's going to be called the Overton window. I'll get more into that as I go along. And finally, in larger things, I'm going to talk about cancel culture. Uh, more specifically, the importance of freedom of speech. I know I've hit on that before, but it's very important to me. So... Without further ado, I will get right to my stupid stuff. Okay, anthropomorphism. Anthropo is Greek for human. Anthropo. And morphism means change. Everyone knows to morph means to change. Um, and so anthropomorphism has come to mean that we assign human qualities to non-human things. In this particular case, to dogs. Um uh, I'll get right to it. My wife thinks dogs smile. My wife thinks that our dog smiles. Now, I'll agree that she shows her teeth in a happy way. Which I guess you would think is the definition of smiling. But she only seems to do it when she's laying on her back. <clears throat> like She's looking at us upside down. And I, I think it's just gravity pulling her jowls down. Her upper jowls down so it looks like kind of looks like the shape of a smile um, and I asked my wife about it I don't I, I kind of like that my wife thinks this I don't even know if she really does she might be just being facetious um, I'm not sure if I even want to know if she really believes it I might have to divorce her I'm just kidding that's just a joke I could never ever divorce my wife I'm on her health insurance <laughs> uh, I'm going to be in trouble. Okay, <clears throat> moving on to lifey stuff. Um, <sighs> being down to earth is something people always use as a compliment to somebody. Like, oh my gosh, you're going to like my friend. She's really down to earth. And I just thought more about it. I didn't actually mean to be thinking about it, but something else kind of led me to it. And so I will explain. I noticed that I've, I've mentioned before in podcasts how I I have the a belief that, including myself, that people tend to be egocentric. And it's a natural default setting, I think, because a person is themselves first, really. I mean, we were made as individuals looking out at the world, and we are ourselves. So, in a sense, we are always where we are. It's not true of anything else. So and it makes sense to kind of naturally default to that understanding of ourselves as the center. But um, we can be mistaken when we take it too far 
or take it, try to take it literally. And what I'm getting at is this. I mentioned the Overton window. The Overton window is an expression, kind of a theory, developed by a political scientist named Joseph Overton. I forget what institute he was at. But. Um, and the Overton window is a range of policies or positions that are politically acceptable to enough of the mainstream that you have a chance to be elected. So it can't be too extreme in either direction or else it's outside this kind of frame where people won't think that you're crazy. It seems sensible inside the Overton window. Now, there might be a range of opinions inside the Overton window, like on high, how high or low taxes should be or something like that. Um, but if it's way, way, way out there, it's just you're it's in a democracy. You're just not going to be able to get enough of the electorate to be able to get elected. So this political scientist developed this theory called the Overton window. Now, I've noticed this. People... At least I feel the inclination myself. And it might just be because, again, we're egocentric. I feel like people tend, especially politically, to never voluntarily consider themselves to be extreme. It's the idea of it. it. Sounds like it's negative. You know, most people consider themselves kind of somewhere in the middle, kind of moderate. You know, not too extreme. I think because they would like to think what they believe would appeal to a large group of people instead of a small group of people on the fringe, as they say. No one wants to think of themselves as fringe. In fact, they call it the lunatic fringe in some cases, which is a great song, by the way, from the movie Vision Quest starring Matthew Modine. I recommend it. Anyway, um, so what we tend to do as a defense mechanism is pick the whole spectrum up and move it so that it's convenient to our middle, what we consider to be our position. We move the whole spectrum so it, it positions us in the middle so we don't have to think of ourselves as extreme on one side or the other. News networks do it. They consider all the other ones extreme, but they're the ones that are right in the middle. Everyone likes to think they have their finger on the pulse of most people because we want to be accepted. And I just, I, think, I was thinking to myself, like, if everyone really has this inclination, you could imagine a scenario where, like, a bunch of neo-Nazis are sitting around the neo-Nazi compound. And, and one of them says, hey, fellas, you think maybe we don't need to have the swastika banner hanging in the middle of the living room? Maybe we ought to move it over to the side a bit. Just looks a little extreme right there in the middle. You know, we don't want company coming over here saying it, thinking we're nuts, putting it in the middle. And the club takes a vote and he loses 45 to 1. Because he is apparently outside of that Overton window. That was just something interesting that I had noticed. That actually is the thing that made me laugh when I was walking to the street this morning. <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about um, some happiness hints and some larger things. I'll be back right after this. Welcome back, everybody. That message was brought to you by a period at the end of a bold statement. 
Now, moving on to happiness hints. I want to talk a little bit about being down to earth. Now, this might meander a bit because I wasn't exactly sure where I was going when I started thinking about it, and I just kind of followed my brain. Okay. Being down to earth is a common expression. It's usually um, a positive trait. Someone is down to earth, it means they, they don't act all high and mighty. Kind of the opposite of high and mighty. Like I said, oh, you'll get along with her. She's very down to earth. It got me thinking kind of about heights. One of my, I think, primary fears is a fear of heights. But I love them. I think I figured out why. Being up high is fun, first of all. And usually what you see from that perspective is beautiful in some way. Um, just getting a sense of everything from above, from far away. It inspires awe, to me at least. I looked up the word awe. Awe is a feeling of reverence mixed with fear or wonder. Reverence is a deep respect for someone or something. So just to be to have something be awesome really means to kind of have a deep respect but have a mixture kind of a fear or wonder and i think i understand why it's fear um and the higher you go the smaller you feel like you can climb up a ladder really high ladder when you're painting your house or you can go on a roller coaster or you can be up in a high building or you can be on an airplane. For some really lucky people, they get to be in space. And I was just thinking to myself, it's not really the height that's dangerous. It's the gravity. Gravity is a force that attracts a body toward the center of the earth. Remember from your science class. Or toward any other physical body having more mass. Much greater mass. Um, but gravity is also a statement. I think of how small a person is compared to the mass of the world, right? The reason why it instills fear is because without even really knowing it, since you have this innate sense that you're much smaller, you know that you will end up being attracted to the larger thing, you know, in terms of physics and end up crashing down toward it and hitting it and maybe dying. And it has a way of putting things in perspective. Um, it kind of gravity, the force of gravity kind of keeps score of what's bigger and more powerful than what. It kind of puts you in your place. There's another definition of gravity, though, that also means extreme or alarming importance, seriousness. Right? There was a lot of gravity to the conversation. You could tell he took his new job with gravity. I didn't really use that right, but you get what I mean. And it makes sense because death, if you fall down from something really high, death is extreme or alarming. Very important. It's serious. It's like the def second definition says. So every time I'm high someplace, like a roller coaster or a mountain peak, if I'm hiking or an airplane, I'm reminded of my size. I try to be reminded of my size compared to everything else. And, and in an odd way, gravity literally helps keep me down to earth. If 
followed that logic, I thought, oh my god, I wonder if that's where that began. Or if I'm just down a rabbit hole. But the point is, I think there are reminders right in our physical world that kind of direct us spiritually. Um, and it's just one of those amazing things that sometimes when I don't think about it too hard, I think maybe, maybe someone did create all of this. There's a point to everything. But who knows? I guess that's part of the point, too. We shall not know until we know. Okay, I'm going to get to larger things, and, and I'm going to talk about cancel culture and larger things, but... Um, I'm going to take a while, so I'm going to take one more quick break and gather myself, and then when I get back, I will get to larger things and censorship uh, slash cancel culture, which I think everyone knows what that means by now. It's pretty popular. So I'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 16. That message was brought to you by a very suspenseful moment before a scene change in a movie. All right, getting on to my final and larger thing today. I want to talk about cancel culture. And it's an expression that's become very popular recently. And it kind of describes how when people are saying something offensive or hateful or what's considered quote hate speech um a bunch of people get together and try to stop that person from saying it if it's something that's on a television show or radio show or commercial or whatever um people will usually try to convince the sponsors of that show to abandon it so that the show doesn't have funding anymore and then the person can't say what they're trying to say which is they consider hateful, offensive. And I've heard this expression, this this kind of um this kind of tack people have taken in arguments and disagreements. And it's if if a person can't can't demonstrate um what's actually wrong with what you're saying. Um, like, say say a person believes that what you said is discriminatory in some way toward one group or another. Um, but, but it can't really be demonstrated from the words directly. Once it's not possible to demonstrate that, I notice that people kind of retreat to this argument where they say, it's not what you said, but how it made me feel. And we all are supposed to be super sensitive now to the idea of how things will be taken. You want to make sure that you don't say something that's going to be taken wrong. It just got me thinking, like, you know, I don't have control over how something gets taken. You know, I, I drop back and I throw the pass. I can do my best to throw it in the area where it can be caught, but if somebody's got butterfingers, they might drop the ball. And I feel like that's kind of true with messages. I can't determine whether or not somebody catches it in the way that it was intended to be thrown. Now, I do understand that some people say things that are hateful and they are intended to be hateful. But I still think that the answer to that is not stopping them from saying it. 
You know, in a sense, we don't have the right to not be offended. Now, I've talked about free speech before and why I think it's so important that it is enshrined in our Constitution. But I think practically speaking, there's a good reason for it. Things just don't work out the other way. There's basically two ways. You can either let everyone say everything with the understanding that some of it's going to be stupid or mean and some people are going to be offended by it. Or you can begin this process of, number one, determining what is unacceptable to say, which is going to be viewed differently by different people. And then stopping them from saying, how, how do you go exactly go about stopping them from saying it? Are we, we going to charge people for saying something that is hateful or that is taken to be hateful? You know, it's not, uh, it's not against the law to hurt a person's feelings. Now, that said, I don't think we should try to. You know, like I have a kind of sensitive streak. Like remember I was saying, I don't like it when I see animals in distress. I also, I guess that includes humans. <laughs> I don't like it when somebody says something belittling to somebody else because of some quality, especially a quality they can't control or, you know, are struggling with, like their weight or their height or, you know, the color of their skin or their uh, ethnicity or their religion or, you know, something like that where... Um, it, uh, the intention of the words are really just to hurt. And I think psychologically they're because that, that someone says those things because they, they really, I think ultimately if you trace it all the way back, they don't like something about themselves. Otherwise, why would they care? As long as someone's not making them think or do something or say something, why would they, why would they really care that much about what someone else is like if it doesn't infringe on what they want to be like? And I usually think it's some kind of resentment that they have of themselves. I could be wrong. I'm not a psychiatrist, not a professional one anyway. And so <clears throat> I looked this up because um, I, I got thinking about quotes from history that relate to the topic. And uh, I found an interesting, I, people probably already know this. I thought that this was a quote from Thomas Jefferson, but it isn't. It's a quote from Benjamin Franklin. And um, the story is Benjamin Franklin was walking out of Independence Hall after the Constitutional Convention of 1787. And as he was walking out, where they were framing the Constitution, someone shouted out, Hey, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? And as legend has it, Benjamin Franklin responded saying, A republic, if you can keep it. And I thought what that meant, if you can keep it. And it's kind of funny because... It's not really by force that we keep a republic. It might be by force that we overthrow a monarch. But how exactly do you keep a republic? What is it that you would have to be careful to make sure that you fend off in order to maintain a democracy or a republic? Essentially just freedom. And I think it kind of comes down to this. If you're tough enough to handle the freedom, and I thought more about it. I thought particularly if you're able to handle the freedom of others. Everybody can handle their own. Well, no, not everybody can handle their own freedom. <laughs> but everyone has a much easier time handling their own freedom than they do the freedom of other people. Most especially freedom of speech. Now, I don't want to get too academic here, but one of my favorite philosophers is a 
French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire. Born Francois-Marie Arouet, by the way. Uh, but he lived in the uh, late 1600s and then through most of the 1700s. He had a long life. But Voltaire is the one that famously said, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I feel like in this current cancel culture, this sentiment is dissipating. I don't think someone understands. Well, I, don't know. I don't think most people understand, or maybe they do, but enough people don't understand, or at least in action they don't seem to understand, that allowing that other person to say something completely opposite of what you would believe is more important than what they're talking about. That's how you keep a republic. You remember which is the cart and which is the horse. You have to be willing to allow someone to say something that you would spend your lifetime arguing against. You have to defend that. Because otherwise, where do you get the right to say, the freedom to say, what you think is right? So that's kind of why I think when you when you look at the two ways you can handle, you know, quote unquote hate speech, there's either find these strategies and start going down this path where you stop people from saying stuff, which end up might eventually might eventually end up being you. You don't get to say stuff. And you're like, well, well no, that's not right because what I'm saying is right. Well, who decides what's right? And if you go down that path, what ends up happening is you have to listen to the guy with the guns. I think the reason why dialogue is so important is because it allows combat of ideas so that we don't have to have combat with guns. Because eventually, usually in monarchies, they're overthrown because people feel like they don't have freedom. And if the people in control with the guns don't listen, the, 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 the resistance tries to find a way to get more guns. And that's how... Revolutions end up bloody, and which happened in France. Um, so I just I, I try to remind myself to remember that principle when I'm listening to somebody say something that I personally think is disgusting. Um, but it just does not seem as popular a sentiment these days. And um, traditionally, Freedom of speech has been very important. and But also, traditionally, it's been very important to not say hurtful things intentionally to each other. And I just wonder which way the tradition is going to go. I feel like it's changing a little bit. And I'm not expressing an opinion politically on, on either side of the spectrum. Oh, here I go. I'm in the middle. Actually, I'm not in the middle, but I'm just not choosing not to share my positions. I'm actually kind of extreme on some issues and extreme in a different way on other issues. Maybe I'm in the middle on some. I guess that's just my long-winded, sophisticated way of saying I'm in the middle, but whatever. So anyway, we got to make sure that the horse stays in front of the cart or neither will go. And so I thought about this whole relationship of this, this person speaking and the person hearing. Listening, people always say, you're hearing, but you're not listening. You're listening, but you're not hearing. I, I don't really feel like going into that because I'm not sure which is which. But 
um, there's a sender and there's a receiver in this communication relationship. And, and the reason why I think the only real solution is completely free speech is because when people have strong feelings about something, that doesn't necessarily mean that what they feel is right. And you have a common misconception that when you feel strongly about something, you, you say what you think is right. I guess you can say what you think is right, but it doesn't necessarily make you right. I mean, throughout history, people have had strong feelings about many things. And looking back in context, we can say with certainty that many of them were not right. So strong feelings are not tantamount to certitude. And I think what happens is someone will have a very strong feeling and they'll enter it into the arena of ideas, the combat of ideas, and it won't get very far. And they'll get frustrated because they have such a strong feeling that they're right. But then when it gets into the arena of ideas, which usually are in the framework of words, and words have a certain true-false quality. Like if you can't make your strong feeling reconcile with the rules of argument, Maybe you're not right. Maybe you just feel strongly about it and need to kind of revisit your thinking about it, your feelings being what they are. Um, I've done that. Again, that's a, a thing that I try. I try to always – that's why when I say sometimes that I like to put something in words so that I can put it away. If I have a strong feeling about something, something happens and it upsets me or – or inspires me in some way, and I want to kind of tether it to reality. I like to put it in words so that I can say, yep, that does make sense. So if, if I were ever to, to enter it into the, the combat of ideas, I would know exactly what I mean and how to say it. Someone might make a better argument, and, and I would have to revisit my argument, um, which, which is, I think, the idea of it all. Um, but at least... It helps me understand that it isn't just a feeling, right? So if, if you can't be reconciled with the requirements of logic, logical argument, then I think we it's incumbent on us, the person feeling that feeling, it's incumbent on us to, to understand that it doesn't really have any transferable value. You're completely allowed to think it and feel it yourself. But when it comes to trying to get somebody else to or this feeling that they ought to, um, I think the bridge can go too far because it's just not transferable. Now you can put it in words and make an effort to make it transferable. Um, and that's where you, that's where convincing and persuasion happens. But the reason why everyone's saying anything they want is better than, um, people being censored is because if you go the censorship route, who decides what's not appropriate? Is it just how someone ends up feeling? How you made me feel when you said it? That's that's not a firm enough anchor or barometer for what should and shouldn't be said because it's ever-changing. You know, there's never really a level playing field. I could be offended by anything you say. Does that mean that you don't get to say anything? You know, who, who ends up being the arbiter? And the arbiter ends up being arbitrarily assigned. Whoever feels offended. That's who we should listen to. And so it just becomes this 
this crap. So I firmly, firmly believe the solution to an offensive statement is a better statement in response if one is available. Now, if one isn't and you just feel strongly that, that you don't like what that person said, but you cannot make a rebuttal, I think it's time to revisit. But this, it, it, we cannot have a system where the onus is placed on the speaker not to offend. You don't have the right to not be offended. And that is the price you pay for your own freedom. You want the right to say what you want to say. The price you have to pay in exchange for it is listening to someone else. Or actually, you don't even have to listen. You just have to allow them to say it. Don't try to get them to stop. Especially when you ruin someone's livelihood because of it. I'm going to make it so that you can't afford to say that thing you're saying. It's another way of just censoring somebody. So that is how I feel about that. I'm sorry if you strongly disagree you're welcome to but that's just the way we're built we are border busters we're gonna try and push something to the next level and, and sometimes people even push it further because they know somebody's offended you know it's the whole idea of like shock jocks and then and you know people you've seen people in the media that they have, their whole purpose appears to be sticking it to the people who are offended easily and it is kind of fun to watch um, from the side. But I, I just know that I don't ever, I know eventually they'll come for me. I don't ever want to be the one who is, whose assa character is assassinated or my livelihood is destroyed. But I try to be thoughtful too. I don't purposely try to hurt people's feelings. If they happen to be hurt, they happen to be hurt. Just like if mine happened to be hurt, they happen to be hurt. Ah, oh, I felt good to get out. That is what I have to say about cancel culture. And with that, I have come to the end of episode 16. As always, thank you very much for listening. I enjoyed talking to you. Hope to see you soon. Hopefully tomorrow.